Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, I'm really glad that you've decided to join us. There is no bad from which good cannot come. That's something we heard right here on this show yesterday from our guest Maria Hinojosa, the host of Latino USA. She was quoting a Mexican saying that resonates with her at this moment. And she's right. There's no way around it. This past year and a half have been a real struggle, and that's true for just about all of us. It's not just the pandemic that has been devastating for millions of Americans. It's also the pain and trauma of living through a deadly attack on our nation's capital by right-wing extremist followers of former President Donald Trump. And it's the pain and trauma of watching a police officer literally choke the life out of George Floyd for nine and a half minutes. What good can come from these horrifying events? Well, we've heard the word reckoning over and over in the last year to describe what has followed these events, all of the conversations that are now shaping the narrative around systemic inequality its history, and its effect on us now. We've probably talked more and more about these things uh, in the past 18 months than we have in many, many years before. But what is a reckoning if it doesn't come with real, tangible change? What is a reckoning if it doesn't improve people's lives? Although Democrats have taken control of the U.S. House, the Senate, and the White House, they find themselves at this moment stuck at impasse after impasse over legislation that could really change millions of Americans' lives, could really deliver on a lot of the things that people are calling so desperately for. That's where we begin the conversation today. What good can come from all of these bad things that have happened? And is this the right moment? Is this the right opportunity to get that change? Here to talk about this defining moment and the politics involved is someone who is thinking a lot about these things these days. Eddie Glaude Jr. is chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, and he's author of the book Begin Again. James Baldwin's America, and its urgent lessons for our own. Eddie Glaude, welcome back to Detroit Today. It's my pleasure. It's it's wonderful to be here. So I want to start with this stalemate between progressive Democrats and more conservative members of the party in Congress. I want to first address it more broadly as a theme that we keep coming back to on all kinds of policy discussions. The Democratic Party, of course, is a pretty diverse party. It includes people who sit pretty far left, and it includes a lot of people who sit kind of in the center. So why are we so stuck on these issues that the party does stand for and that Democratic voters, I think, put people into office to deliver, but that we don't seem to be able to get quite yet? I think this is a fundamental question that takes us to the heart of the 
of, of the depth of the problems we face as a nation. Uh, one way to begin to answer the question is to, is to offer a general description, right? That is to say that we're witnessing in real time the collapse of the age of Reagan. Its ideological pillars have revealed themselves to be, you know, hollow in some ways, right? The idea that all government is bad, uh, the idea that taxing, tax taxes, um, tax cuts are the source of economic stimulus, the idea that, um, you know, the private sector can address substantively uh, the public good. Um, many of those precepts have been uh, revealed to be bank bankrupt. Now, if it is the case that the age of Reagan is collapsing, that means that the Republican Party that has basically been its vehicle is collapsing. And we know that to be true because we see that the Republican Party has basically become, in some many ways, a neo-fascist or illiberal party. But at the same time, and this I know this is a convoluted answer, but I think it's important. At the same time, the Democratic Party that came into existence to respond to Reaganism mm -hmm. is in trouble as well. So the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Conference, the third way, all of these folk who engaged in triangulation by taking Republican issues and making them Democratic issues, that element of the Democratic Party still lives. You heard it in the language, you hear it in the language of Joe Manchin. You hear it uh, in, 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 in the warning issued by John Podesta. So the moderate Democrats are really just Rockefeller Republicans who danced with Reaganism. And so we have that civil war within the party because there's an idiot, there are those within the Democratic Party, in my view, who cling to the basic presuppositions of Reaganism. And it stand, those presuppositions, in my, in my view, stand in the way to a fundamental transformation of the way we govern and how we respond to the problems the country faces. Does that make sense? It, it, makes, it makes perfect sense. And in, in one way, though, it's healthy, I think, that the Democratic Party includes people who have really different ideas about what government should be, how the country right. should run. But, but I want to ask you about how much race is playing a role in, in that division. We're talking about the policy differences among Democrats, and that's important. But I think race is an aggravator in that equation. And if it is not the reason for that divide, is making it worse. And it is making it harder, I think, to get to especially the kind of legislation that we're talking about in the U.S. House and the Senate right now. I think that's 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 very perceptive. I think that's spot on. Race has always been at the heart of, you know, the debates about the role uh, and and scope of of government. I mean, Slate published a piece not too long ago uh, talking about John C. Calhoun in, from South Carolina and uh, his limits on on government spending, rooted in his commitment to slavery. Uh, when we think about uh, the response to the great society of the mid-20th century. Uh, my own former colleague, Mark Gill, uh, Gill, Professor Gillens, wrote a, wrote a wonderful book uh, charting how uh, once the face of welfare became black, how many of those Southern, Southern Democrats and others who were committed to the basic policies of the New Deal turned their backs on, 
on, on, on that on that particular policy orientation. And then you combine that with the the panic and terror over the democratic over the demographic shifts that the country is facing. Remember, the census data just came out that for the first time in U.S. history, the white population is in decline. So those factors are at work, I think. So the history of of, of debate around the scale of government has in part not reduced not reducible to it, but has in part grappled with how do we respond to the question of race uh, uh, still haunts our debates. Um, and then I would add all of those elements to this particular thing. The Democratic Party often acts like a scorned lover, hmm. constantly trying to attract the attention of the so-called Reagan Democrat. The center of, it, of, of the party's political imagination is this white, working class, heterosexual male with the construction hat on his head. The people who participated in the hard hat rebellion in 1970 in New York City, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for example, and that particular constituency drives, um, it seems, political strategy. And so, there's not only the the members of of the Democratic Party in Congress, there's also the consulting class that that informs how they think politically, who seem to be captured by this this rejected lover kind of orientation. Uh, and, and it seems to me that the country has shifted and they are still stuck in language from 40 years ago. Mm. So, of course, specifically, Congress is having a really hard time passing the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which is inspired by the, the the mistreatment of African-Americans at the hands of police, but is something that, of course, would benefit all Americans who interact with, right. uh, with authorities. Uh, what's your reaction to the implosion of the talks over this, which, again, uh, have really mirrored everything that, that, that you just said, this, this solicitation of white working class uh, Americans and their representatives to support this this bill. It is seen, I, th I feel, by the center of the party as too black. It is too raced. It is too steeped in the narrative of Black Lives Matter, which is, is not warmly embraced uh, by those voters. I, you know, it is there are a couple of things that come to mind immediately. One is the dalliance with the Republican Party, right? So we know we've seen this ritual where there's this uh, there's this attempt, this this declaration of bipartisanship, and then Democrats bend over backwards to invite Republicans to the table, and then they give up uh, all of and they give up so much in order to and you know to to uh, compromise with Republicans, only to find out that you know that bipartisanship means for Republicans, you just do what we want. And if you fail to do what we want, we will pull out from pull out from the talks and then declare that you uh, weren't really invested in bipartisanship. It's the same ritual. We saw it over the eight years with Obama and we're seeing it now. So that's the first thing. So, you know, you know, you know how they're going to behave and then you enter into this and then they behave in the exact same way. Mm. It's almost uh, uh, an example of what Einstein called insanity, right? Um, so, so there's there's that, and then there's the, the the way in which the discussion around police reform 
has still is still framed by the debates around you know the how can I put it is still framed by the language of law and order hmm. almost immediately coming out of uh, the George Floyd uh, uh, murder and and the protests that followed we immediately started hearing the very language around the police that justified right massive investment in policing across the country that justified uh, expanding and um, uh, exponentially the carceral state. Uh, this framework of law and order became uh, uh, an accelerant, was the accelerant uh, that in some ways made the United States uh, the uh, carceral state that it is. And here we have, as we're trying to respond to evidence, repeated evidence of police overreach, right, of the failures of, 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 our, of the approach of carcerality to the issue of safety, and security, we have the same language. So on the one hand, I think you're right that this issue is tethered to black bodies. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's not even on the other hand, I think it's the framing mm. that doomed it in, from, in the first place, right? Because there was no substantive shift um, in the way in which they were thinking about this uh, at, well, I should say, let me be a little bit more generous. Um, they were giving up the very shifts that were being demanded, the very transformations that were being uh, called for by capitulating to this, the silliness of, of Republicans claim that folk wanted to just simply zero out the budgets of police departments. Mm -hmm. That's just silly. So, so is it that we have more work to do educating people about what's really happening to African-Americans at the hands of the police and more about what we mean when we say defund the police. I think that 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 phrase and the, the, the association of that with somehow zeroing out police budgets was, has been very damaging, of course, to, to the discussions about about legislation. Is it that we need to spend more time trying to get people to understand so that they can support these things? Or is it that this is something of a lost cause because it can't appeal to, uh, to the voters and to the representatives who sit in the middle and who need to be on, on the side of this in order for it to become law? I mean, it sort of, it, it sort of yeah. leaves the whole discussion uh, hanging in the balance. Right. No, I think, you know, um, those two options are, are both depressing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On a certain, on a certain level. Um, it is, I think many people who, most people who respond to defund the police negatively are often doing so in bad faith. Uh, I know the Republican labeling of, of that slogan, mm -hmm. um, um, was in bad faith because they're they're trying to, they've been trying to defund the Department of Education they've been trying to de I mean <laughs> we could just go down the line right and we know that it was a slogan aimed at really trying to I mean you can't you know defund the police is is a little bit catchier than budget your values right mm -hmm. you know that we want you to invest more in in social services and instead of policing and carcerality right it's it's it was a slogan aimed at uh, focusing in our our attention and and so instead politicians as they want to do focus 
used a phrase to focus on our fears. So I think part of what we have to do is to understand that people know better. We mm. presume that they don't, but they do. Mm. People know better, but they're willing to ju- allow just they're willing to to accept justifications for their ugliness. But people know better. So it's not a matter of ignorance. W.E.B. Du Bois realized that early on at the turn of the 20th century when he thought that racism was a matter of ignorance until he saw the knuckles of Sam Holes in the, in, in, the store, in, in the window of a storefront and Sam Holes was lynched. Yes. And he said, no, this is not about reason. This is something else at work. And so the second part of the answer is we need to just simply press the agenda. I mean, think about going back to Reaganism. Think about Reagan and re- what Reaganism did. Everybody thought this cat was going to start their World War III. Mm-hmm. <laughs> George H.W. Bush thought his tax plan was voodoo economics. They thought the they many folks thought the crazy wing, the Goldwater wing of the Republican Party had won. And what did Reagan do? He did not spend his time trying to convince, you know, Mondale and and traditional Democrats to sign on to the agenda, he just pursued it and changed the very framework of our politics. Mm. We just need to go ahead and make the argument, make the case, push the argument, do what the Progressive Caucus is trying to do now, play hardball politics for an agenda, uh, uh, with an agenda for the American people. Mm. And Because if we keep trying to, shall we say, convince these folks, as opposed to say, you need to get on this bus or be left behind. Uh, if we keep trying to convince these folks, then we're going to see more and more people um, left behind, death, dead. We're going to see the country collapse because in some ways that's those are the stakes. Mm. I hope that makes sense. Yes. And if you think about it, the only progress that really has ever been made on this front, especially in terms of legislation, has been when somebody has decided Hey, this is what we're doing. We're going forward, and if you're not uh, if you're not with us, then you'll be left behind, and there may be consequences for that. I'm thinking specifically, of course, of uh, Lyndon Johnson in uh, the 1960s mm-hmm. and the ways in exactly. which he gets the Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Rights Act uh, passed, despite real opposition inside uh, the Democratic Party, of course, in the South, and and real opposition from Republicans uh, as well. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we're going to raise a little money, and then we're going to come back and continue this wonderful conversation (laughs) with uh, Eddie Glaude. We want to hear from you as well. What do you make of congressional Democrats' inability to reach consensus within their own party over major pieces of legislation like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act or the budget reconciliation bill that would fund child care and climate change? Uh, and immigration initiatives. Uh, How would you approach these issues? How would you get these pieces of legislation through a Congress that is so divided, even inside of one party? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
This is the trick today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Eddie Glaude. He is the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University and author of the book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for our own. Uh, we're talking about what's going on in Washington right now. We're talking about uh, the impasse that we see among Democrats getting progressive legislation passed, legislation that would change the relationship between people, citizens, and the police, uh, legislation that might protect more of the vote in America from the assaults that we see uh, from Republican legislatures. Uh, trying to make it harder for some folks to cast ballots. Uh, Why can't Democrats who control the House, who control the Senate, and who have a president in the White House get these things done? And even more important, what is it that needs to change to get them to be able to move some of this legislation? We want to hear from you as well what you think of the stall over, for instance, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act or the Budget Reconciliation Bill that would fund all kinds of child care and climate change and immigration initiatives. What should Democrats be doing to move these things forward? Should they uh, use brute force to get things done the way that we have seen Republicans in recent years make sure that their agenda is enacted? Or should we be trying to convince Uh, folks in the center of the Democratic Party. People like Joe Manchin, who uh, is a senator from West Virginia, who's kind of the pivot point, really, uh, in the Senate between Democrats and Republicans. Should we be spending more time on convincing his voters and him to be more open to these things? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. Let's start with uh, Wardell in southeast Detroit. Wardell, welcome to Detroit Today. Are you there, Wardell? Yes, I am. Hi, go ahead. Uh, okay. Uh, yes, thank you, very, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Wardell. We're listening. Now, Wardell, I think uh, maybe your <laughs> phone is not cooperating. Uh, if you want to give us a call back, uh, we will try really hard to get you uh, on the air. We've got some other callers uh, queuing up. Uh, let's go to Heather in Beverly Hills. Heather, what's on your mind? Hi, hi, Stephen. Hi. Um, I just I don't know how to be concise with this. I'm, I'm trying to help. Um, I would say my husband and I both are would be um, categorized as white privilege. I have a master's degree from U of M in the School of Public Health. He's a an, an engineer who has a law degree and is a pilot. Uh, we were harmed. We're middle class, long-term Democratic voters. Attend Black Lives Matter protests. Donate. Um, you know I've been preaching anti-racism since I learned about it from brilliant Ph.D. instructors at teacher training in California, um, like, like the mass firing of teachers after desegregation. I mean, a lot of people don't know about that. And so I just, but I couldn't get on board with defund the police exactly because I didn't understand it. And I don't want to speak for all 
anyone else other than to say there must be other people like myself who don't understand it because although I think the police who have harmed my husband and me greatly recently uh, abused us um, at our home, mm. although that even happened in a response to him falling and breaking his leg, um, they hurt us very badly, called me names. You know, if I was black, they probably would have shot me or arrested me and not even let me go to the hospital, <clears throat> excuse me, to be with him. They were just horrible to us. I still didn't understand defund the police until after I watched what was happening over in Wisconsin with the Averys, as well as the Survival Guide to Prison um, on Netflix, produced in 2018. Then it dawned on me. Now I get it, but I had to go and find those mm. documentaries. Now I understand it should be rebranded as Replace the Police, mm -hmm. because the police have actually helped me a few times. And when you, even though they're trained, in my view, like gladiator thugs who are trained like to act like criminals, I mean, that's how I see them. They have helped me a few times. And so part of me is like defund the police sends a message of you get no help, no chance of any help at all. But if you have police, you have a chance of being helped and a chance of being harmed. It's, it's maybe that's better than no chance. So mm. defund the police sends a scary message to me anyway. Mm. I feel like it should be replace the police with a team of psychologists first, trained psychologists first, who are trained secondarily as police to carry guns. Yeah. Heather, so I, 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 yeah, I really... Replace yeah, I really love uh, that you called and kind of explain your own confusion about that and and mm -hmm. what it is that you support. Uh, and I'll say up front that the the movement to to reform the police has always been about what you're talking about and it has never been about zeroing out a police budget or or removing the police. But there's another, I think, important dimension for for your understanding, and that is the history of policing in this country and its ties to white supremacy. And so uh, while you're right that uh, what we, I think, want to do is reform policing and uh, replace officers, in some cases, uh, with people who are more focused on uh, people's mental health and, and well-being, uh, I, I think we also are saying that there needs to be a fundamental rethink of the whole idea of policing because of that history. Uh, Eddie, go go ahead and uh, take it from there. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right, Stephen. It seems to me that part of what uh, activists and remember, defund the police um, is a phrase that comes out of grassroots organizing that has been outside of cameras for a decade or so. Um, and really what it was is mobilizing voters to bring pressure to bear on local municipalities to budget differently. That safety and security meant a broader understanding of how what challenges communities faced. So not only are we talking about uh, you know deploying, you know stopping the the practice of deploying police officers uh, as first responders to mental uh, health crises. But we're also trying to get a better understanding of the nature of what constitutes the background conditions for crime. Mm. So our typical response has been policing and locking people up. But if we think about crime in a broader sense, right, as resource-deprived communities that are related to schools that fail, that are that that's related to the absence of jobs, you know, and and the like, now we're beginning to see that you know criminal 
uh, crime is a much more complex phenomena that requires a much more complex answer. So defund the, you can't say all of that in the middle of a rally. So defund the police is in effect, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, the, maybe the phrase budget your values um, could be uh, 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 really an explication of the phrase. Mm. So I think it's really important for us to shift from the framework, as I said earlier, Stephen, of law and order to a framework of safety and security. Mm. Every community deserves to be safe and every community deserves to be secure. But what that means, what that entails goes beyond simply more police and more carceration, yeah. incarceration. Yeah. Again, Heather, I really appreciate your call I do and too. the incredible candor uh, that, that, that you shared with us about how you're thinking about these issues. And it's important that you are thinking about these issues. You are engaging with uh, the conversation that's taking place. So uh, we really appreciate Absolutely. that. Let's go back to Wardell, who is back with us and uh, thinks he has solved his phone issues. Wardell, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, okay, I really appreciate uh, what's going on with this uh, program and, uh, and, and Dr. Glad. What, what I think is, is going on, there are people who just want to get stuff stirred up, be there on the left or the right. We all know abolish the police, defund the police. It's not going to go over well with most people, especially senior citizens who are asking for more police. You know? So with these folks, well-meaning in many ways, but they want to, it's kind of a shock. But it doesn't work. It gives the right all kinds of things to say why you shouldn't uh, abolish the police. Well, most people in the inner city do not want the police abolished. We want to reform it and make it, and make it better. I think that many people, their cause is the lost cause. They enjoy this. There are mm. people at churches, family meetings, neighbors, and all of that. They come to the meeting to upset it, to destroy it, and get people angry. Now, maybe these, maybe there's some other issues of why they're doing that, but I think we have to really take that for, for what it is, like the South lost cause, or maybe there's the North lost cause. Mm. They just want to get stuff created. Mm. And even when things are trying to, to make things better, they don't appreciate it. And another thing I think with Joe Manchin, I think he doesn't like Bernie Sanders. He doesn't like progressives. So, therefore, with, 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 with many of the Republicans and some Democrats see this whole, uh, uh, this, this whole thing for fighting about making things better and, and everything, about the, uh, the making the world a better place to live, about progressive ideals. And most of those ideals are right off of Bernie's playbook. And what they're not coming out and saying, they don't like those ideas. Corporate America doesn't like those ideas. They don't like when you're trying to talk about universal health care. Mm-hmm. But Bernie has to be very careful how you talk about things like that. And I, and I don't know how many times I've heard people, black and white, when they talk about Bernie Sanders for an example, he says he's a, a socialist Democrat and whatnot. He's a socialist. He's a communist. Just the other day, a young black man said the same thing. So there are people, I guess, their cause is a lost cause. We can get along. We can do better. But a lot of people don't want us to get along with each other and do better, and they don't like multiculturalism and all the stuff that goes on with liberal progressive ideals. They actually hate it. And I hear people on on a regular basis. Wardell, I don't want to cut you off, but uh, I I do want to get back to to Eddie Glaude to have him to react to what you're saying. And before that, I I, I want to focus in on something that you said that I think is really important. Uh, You said Mm -hmm. in the African-American community, you feel like we need the police, but we need the police to be something really different than, uh, than, than what we're experiencing. I think that's a a voice that sometimes gets uh, muffled or, 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 or shouted down. I'm not saying 
it is uh, necessarily representative of the majority, but there are a lot of African Americans who just want the police to do their jobs in a really different uh, way. But I, I, I really appreciate the Carl uh, Wardell. Eddie, react to what he's uh, saying here. Yeah, I just want to act, you know, to, to really uh, underline your that point that, that, you know, when I talk about resource-deprived communities, oftentimes those are our communities. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about communities that want to be safe and secure, I'm talking about our communities. But we also don't want to be subject to racial profiling. We don't want to be subject to a form of policing that that tramples on our rights. We don't want to have to worry about our children as they leave home because we were afraid that somebody, some police officer is going to lock them up, abuse them, or even kill them, right? So we're trying to address something that's systemic, that has everything to do with the purpose of policing in this country, how it's imagined, which is really to contain particular populations, to police and discipline particular populations uh, as opposed to others. And that's a different sort of debate. But I think Wardella has hit, hit it on, on the head. There are some people who cleave to the idea that America must remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe. And any mm. effort to imagine us differently right, will raise the hackles on their necks. And we see it over and over again. Just the slightest thing will trigger their fears. And right now we're in the midst of a kind of rolling, cascading panic and terror on the part of many of our white fellows about the changing nature of the country. Mm-hmm. And as for Joe Manchin, we heard really quickly, just really quickly, Joe Manchin said just yesterday that, you know, the reconciliation, the omnibus reconciliation bill uh, reads something will turn us into, he wanted to say social democracy, but he says it's, it's a bill around entitlement and I want us to just simply reward work. And better. The language mm. is the very language used to roll back the great society, is the very language used, right, to, to, to limit and constrain the effort to make this place a genuine, genuinely multiracial democracy. Coming out of the mouth of a Southern Democrat. Mm. We need to understand that for what it is. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I also want to get your thoughts, Eddie, on what we're seeing right now unfold on the Texas border with uh, these Haitian migrants who want to be Americans, want to escape uh, pretty bad conditions uh, and, and come to this country, and the response that we're seeing to them, the, the response, the instant response on the border itself uh, with authorities doing things that uh, I, I've only really seen in movies uh, before, uh, but but also the broader response, the, the, the sense that there is something offensive about their the very notion that they might come to America to, to seek a better life. I, I, sometimes... I think uh, we're, we're, we're in a time warp and that it's 80 years ago in this country, the way that we're talking about these things. Yeah. Yeah, those images on the border, man. Wow, they just, they, they were enraging, yes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and one of the things they revealed was that the basic structure of Stephen Miller's immigration policies are still in place. Wow. That's what, you can't put lipstick on a pig and think it's not to, not a pig. And we saw the elements of that that of, of, of the punitive, cruel nature of those immigration of, 
of the of, of, of Miller's policies, um, now Biden's policies. Right? We saw it uh, evidenced uh, just recently, right? With with all with the horseback ride yes. on horseback, using reins to whip uh, Haitians and, and then to deport them like immediately on planes back to a place that has experienced unimaginable uh, trauma in terms of natural disaster and political upheaval, right? It's cruel. And it's a reflection, not just simply, I should say this, of Stephen Miller's cruelty. It's a reflection of what we talked about earlier. This immigration policy is all about, you know, trying to curtail uh, the panic around the changing demographics Mm -hmm. of the country. There's a direct line we can draw between January 6th, the insurrection, attacks on voting rights, the attack on Asian Americans, and the immigration debate. The through line of it all is the browning of America. Mm. That isn't in the distant future, but it's happening now. Mm. Uh, uh, Do you think it is hyperbole to compare what we're seeing in these confrontations in Texas to the hunting down of runaway slaves a uh, hundred and sixty some years ago. I mean, is that is that? Are, am I crazy to to conjure that image? No, no, I don't think so. It's not, but it, but it's. I think it's it it makes sense viscerally. But oftentimes when we make these sorts of analogies, we, we, we gloss over or we obscure the different form of, of punishment, of discipline and domination that is being exercised. Mm-hmm. So when we say this is like slavery, right, we are talking about a particular form of domination, right? But Jim Crow isn't slavery. It's something else. Or when we say this is like Jim Crow, right? Jim Crow was a particular de jure, de jure segregation. It was a particular system. But this is something. And oftentimes when we say that, we lose sight of the different mechanisms of domination that have come, in, that have come into play. So part of what we have to do, I think, is to, is to understand the visceral response. This looks like when people are, you know, a friend of mine in graduate school was walking in Arizona and some uh, some white guys were driving in a truck by him and literally lassoed him. Hmm. Real lasso and grabbed him. My goodness. Right, tried to grab him, right, and then drag him, you know. So these images kind of conjure up that kind of hate. But it's also about the, the logic of, of in this immigration policy that's not reducible to it. It's something else at work here that we need to understand a little bit more carefully, I think. Okay, uh, Eddie Glaude, chair of the (laughs) African-American Studies Department at Princeton. It is always really great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us here. It's my pleasure. And good luck with the fundraiser, Doc. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Remember, if you are listening to Detroit Today and are not a member here at WDET, now is a great time. To change that, 800-959-9338 or WDET.org. Become a member of WDET. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how the Constitution addresses truth and Americans' ability to seek the truth. I'll be joined by Jonathan Rock, 
who is the author of the book, The Constitution of Knowledge, as well as Jim Townsend, who's director of the Levin Center at Wayne State University. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. We'll talk again tomorrow.